0: take your Bible out, turn to Mark, I mean, excuse me, Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10. This may be the most, uh, typically sermons that I preach tend to be a little more dense theologically. Uh, This is probably, I think, in Eleven years of preaching here, maybe the least theological message that i 've ever preached, and probably <laughs> the most practical message i 've ever preached so uh, but I think it's uh it's a message I know that in preparing for it this week, um, listen, if you think i 'm preaching at you this morning, don't feel that way i 'm just preaching to myself. This message has wore me out all week. I mean, it has been in my business, um, pressing in on me in ways that have made me very uh, uncomfortable uh, about my life and about um, some aspects of my spiritual life that definitely need addressing and changing. And so it's going to be a familiar story. It's the story of Mary and Martha. Martha. And I've simply entitled the sermon this morning, it's a question, are you devoted or distracted? Are you devoted or distracted? It's safe to say that our society deals with more distraction than any other previous society in history. Most of us persistently feel pulled in many different directions. Anybody in here not feel that way? I saw a bumper sticker that once said, God loves you and everyone has a wonderful plan for your life. Anybody got people in your life that you just feel like they're trying to plan out your life for you because they know what to do with your life better than what you know what to do? Uh, man, it's, uh, <laughs> I feel like that a lot. And it seems like the older I get, the more people the more people that have expectations on what I should be doing for them. The smartphone is the single most distracting invention ever created. Here it is right here. You got one, you know you do, you brought it in here. Is it on silent like the screen says, every Sunday morning please turn your cell phone to silent? Don't get me wrong. So let me say this before I go on. This is not a sermon on the evils of smartphones. A smartphone is moral or amoral, which means it has no morality. It is neither good nor evil. When it, who's ever hand it's in, that's what determines the morality of this instrument. You understand that? This can be an instrument for a great spiritual... Uh, for a great spiritual life. But it also can be an instrument that can use to destroy your life. It's all about whose hands it's in. And the heart attached to that hand. Tony Reinke, uh recently wrote a book called 12 Ways Your Cell Phone Is Changing You. I posted it on uh, Facebook this morning, the church Facebook page. You can download the first, cop, uh, the first chapter of the book for free. I promise you when you read the first chapter, you'll want to read the other 11 chapters. It's an incredible book uh, on how your smartphone is affecting you in ways that you haven't considered. He wrote this in his book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. The average person checks their phone 81,500 times each year. That equates to that the average person checks their cell phone every 4.3 minutes of the day. That's almost 15 times an hour. Distraction does not produce a happy, well-balanced, or productive life. There's a form of torture in the Middle Ages where they tied a man's limbs to four horses and let them loose. Do you know what this form of torture was called? It was developed by the French. Anybody know what it was called? Distraction. That was the name of the torture. Actually, that is exactly what the word distraction means. To be pulled in opposite directions. This is a great picture of what is happening in our lives. Anybody in here this morning kind of... Anybody here this morning feel kind of pulled apart? Counselors, both Christian and non-Christian, tell us distraction is a significant contributor to listen relational dysfunction i thought we were we were plenty dysfunctional before the smartphone came along along we are now increasingly more dysfunctional distraction makes intimacy impossible for someone to feel intimate with you now this is going to come up on the screen uh, be it your spouse or a child or a good friend here here are three things okay for someone to feel intimate with you, be it a spouse, a child, or a good friend, they have to believe that you consider them a priority in your life. i just leave that on the screen there. Go back, Jay. They have to believe that you consider them a priority in your life. Second, you have, you have plenty of unrushed, time available for them. So for someone to feel intimate with you, they have to believe that you have plenty of unrushed time available for them. I, I want to show you something that just a tip, okay, that you should do with your phone. Or let's just do it this way. Don't raise your hand because i know by the expression on your face. How many of you Go to the dinner table, whether that's at home or out to eat, and take your phone with you and lay your phone on the table. You know what that says to people? (laughs) That at any moment, something could come across that, and you're going to pick it up, and you're going to look at it, you may answer it, and so therefore, you're just not available. Sometimes just having this, having it set out, just opens, lets people know that you're ready at any moment to be unavailable to them. Third, for someone to feel intimate with you, they have to believe you're giving them your undivided attention. They have to believe that you're giving them your undivided attention. Again, go back to the phone, being out. It's hard to give somebody your undivided attention when you have something available that could divide the attention at any moment. You're not meaning to. But you you put a, you posted a picture on your, Instagram account about an hour before and the notification goes off while you're sitting there. Oh, I wonder who commented on my picture. I wonder what they said. You're not meaning to give your attention away, but you are. Why? Because in that moment, knowing what somebody said about a picture that you posted earlier, is far more important than the person that you are physically with at that moment. Distractability, and I'm not sure that's a word, but I'm going to go with it, okay? Distractability keeps our most essential relationships relationships shallow, including our relationship with God. Distractability keeps our most essential relationships shallow, Shallow, including our relationship with God. Furthermore, studies now show distraction makes us ineffective. I recently read a book by a guy named Greg McCowan, uh McK- yeah, McKeon. Excuse me, called Essentialism. There's a copy of this book. He's not a Christian author, by the way, uh, but it is a very interesting book and a really good book if you're looking at how to boil life down to the essentials, especially if you feel kind of spread out and stretched out. Essentialism, in which he explains that the new word for distraction is called multitasking. Anybody in here a multitasker? (laughs) You're a distraction tasker. That's what you are. He says, all I hear is my attention is scattered. I feel so stressed out and I don't do anything well, a.k.a. the definition of a multitasker. We think it means we're on top of things and efficient, but all it means is that we are distracted and not doing anything well. The word multitasking was first invented in 1965 by the IBM Corporation to describe how a computer could do multiple things at once. A computer, which you are not. (laughs) But the problem is that the human mind isn't wired exactly like a computer. Consciousness is pretty much designed to be in one place at one time and switching back and forth, listen, takes time and energy. No wonder you're so wore out. And I'm wore out. The average person sitting at their desk will check their email every five minutes in the midst of whatever else they are doing. I found found this extremely interesting. The problem is that it it takes an average of 64 seconds to resume the previous task after you finish that email, which means... That I waste, you waste, if, if, this is your, if this is the way your life is, that means you waste one out of every six minutes of your day. So you're, 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 you're in a flow of thought, boom, the email comes across, you click, check the email. Now for you to resume what you were doing, it's going to take you a full one minute and four seconds on average to get back into what you were into before. McKeon goes on to say, so when I hear people say that they are multitasking, all I hear is my attention is scattered and I feel stressed out and I don't do anything well. So here's the bottom line. Listen, if we're going to live productive spiritual lives, we have to learn to deal with distraction. How many of you start into your morning prayer time, and you're a minute, two minutes into your prayer time, and all of a sudden, your brain starts going in different directions. <laughs> uh, how many of you sat down to read the Bible, and all of a sudden, within a, a minute or two of reading the Bible, your, your mind starts drifting off in different directions? Distracted. I took a test um, this past week on distraction to find out how distracted I really am. I was surprised. The test that I took said that I was only 15% distracted. I did post another uh, test that you can take on Facebook this morning that'll kind of give you an idea of where you are on the distraction scale. It's very interesting information to learn about yourself. So let's read the text and then let's take away some practical helps this morning. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted. Do you know this is the only time this word appears in the New Testament? And do you know what it means in the Hebrew? I mean, in the Greek, to be pulled apart. (laughs) With much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Did he say it that way or did he go, I mean, I've pondered that this week. How did what, did, what tone did he say that in? You know, because tone's important, right? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But the one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus is warning Martha about being distracted From him by anything else because knowing him listen knowing him is what is most important There are some essential principles about distraction that can be applied to other parts of our lives So first here's point number one this morning (laughs) Distraction is not the same as divine intervention So I got I'm going to clear up something here that can be a little confusing Distraction is not the same as divine intervention. Jesus seemed to be entirely indistractable on the one hand, but eminently interruptible on the other. In Matthew 12, Jesus wouldn't allow his family to keep him from doing God's will. Matthew 12:50. for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister. In John chapter 4, we see that not even hunger could keep him from pursuing God's will. How many of y'all can get distracted by being hangry? Does anybody in here get hangry? I mean, that's hungry that turns into anger. Some of y'all get hangry about 12 o'clock because I can tell. (laughs) Y'all start looking. Y'all looked at me like, y'all love me. And then it's like, if he don't shut up. I'm going to have to come to the altar because I done got hangry. And he won't shut up so I can go eat. Now, y'all don't have the excuse anymore that, well, we need to get home so the roast don't burn because nobody cook on Sundays anymore. I'm glad that that excuse is gone. So now it's, well, we got to beat, you know, the, the other Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Methodists or whoever, you know, to the you know, local watering hole. In John 4, we see that not even hunger can keep him from pursuing God's will. Look at this verse. Meanwhile, his disciples were urging him. Oh, by the way, they had left. This is the story of the woman at the well. Jesus had sent them, to, uh, sent them away. They had found a local uh, Golden Corral buffet, and they had been eating and probably had a to-go box for Jesus. And like, you know, Lord, <laughs> we got you some food. Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I, 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 have, no, I have food to eat. That you don't know about. I love this. And they start looking around like. Where did he get the food from? Because there's like. Nowhere close by where he could eat. Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. So even being hungry. Could not distract Jesus. From doing God's will. This is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be indistractable. He was indistractable, but he was very interruptible. For example, in John 5, Jesus freely allows his Sabbath to be interrupted by a man who needs healing. And Jewish people thought of the Sabbath as the one day you should not be distracted by anything work-related. And Jesus explains his openness to being distracted in John fifteen seven. Jesus said, answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, Jesus recognized that his father was always at work and that he needed to be ready to respond. Jesus was perpetually prepared to respond to divine opportunities, and he taught us to live the same way. He was indistractable, but he was definitely Interruptible. A quick story. Uh, many years ago, uh, a gentleman that I was uh, attending church with, I was an associate pastor at the time, had been in the hospital for some time, um, not doing well. And I had spoken to his family earlier in the day, and they said, you know, um, he's actually improving a little bit. Um, things are on the up and up. Uh, He's still not out of the woods yet, but the doctors feel much better about his situation. I said, well, that's great. Later that evening, this was on a Saturday night, it was late, I got a phone call from uh, a gentleman I went to church with, Mr. Dulaney. And uh, Mr. Dulaney said, uh, Jason, he said, "I, I just feel like we need to go over to the hospital tonight to see Harold. I'm like, Willard, that's it, Mr. Dulaney's name. I said, Willard, it's like 930 at night. I don't think it's a good time for us to go to the hospital. Well, if you don't go with me, I'll go by myself. Well, Willard was about 81, 82 at the time. He had no idea. I mean, he didn't have any business driving during the day, much less driving at night to Birmingham. I said, no, Willard. I said, look, give me a few minutes. Let me, let me get dressed. I'll come by. I'll pick you up. And we'll go see um, Harold. So I go by and I pick up Mr. Dulaney. Well, unbeknownst to me, he had called another older gentleman in our church and got him up out of the bed. And so we all three went to the hospital. And we get there about 11 o'clock at night. And everybody, you know, the nurses are looking at us like, what are y'all doing here? And we're like, you know, we're here to see uh, Mr. Harold. And uh, so we go, she said, well, he's probably asleep. I said, I know that. But I said, Mr. Dulaney needs to really see Harold with his own eyes so that we can all go to bed tonight. So she understood where I was coming from. And so we went down, walked in. Well, Harold's wide awake. He's laying there, set up in the bed. He's wide awake. Something about Harold that you need to know is, is that Harold was a graduate of Auburn University when it was called Auburn Polytechnical Institute, API. He's even, he even showed me his uh, uh, his diploma that had API on it. He was an architect. That was his trade. And so we walked in, and uh, the other two gentlemen went on one side, and I was on the other, and we're talking to Harold. And he's a big Auburn fan, and it's football season, and we're talking about the Tigers, and we're talking about all kind of stuff, and just having a great conversation with Harold. And uh, all of a sudden, Harold went, <gasps> And his eyes rolled back in his head, and he died. And I, I looked at the, Mr. Dulaney and Mr. Chapel on the other side of the bed, and they're looking at me, and they're like, I said, I think Mr. Harold just died. Oh, no, 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 no. So I reach over and I check for a pulse, and there's no pulse. We're in shock. I mean, just dumbfounded. About that time, the, um, uh, oh, I forgot their technical name. The person that does your breathing treatments comes into the room. And uh, she comes in. She's all happy. She's chipper. It's 1130 at night. and <laughs> She's like, I'm here to do Mr. Harold's breathing treatment. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think you're going to do that this evening. She said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, Mr. Harold's not breathing. She looked at me. She thought I was joking around. I said, "No, I'm serious. I, he he just died." So she walks over and she, you know, she checks, and you can tell she's a little troubled. Now she walks down to the foot of the bed. She grabs his foot. She checks for a pulse in his foot. She's even more concerned at this point. She walks out of the room, and about ten minutes later, a doctor comes in and checks Mr. Mr. Kincaid, and he says. Or she says, she goes, I'm very sorry for your loss. And um, I looked at the other two guys. I said, well, who's calling Virginia? That's his wife. Who's calling Virginia to let her know what's happened? And Willard said, well, I can't do it. And Mr. Chappell said, well, I can't do it. Well, you do it. You're a preacher. You, you're, you do this stuff all the time. So I pick up the phone and I call Miss Virginia and I said, Miss Virginia, I said, I'm here and Willard's here and Billy's here and um, we were talking to Mr. Harold and he's gone. And she said, okay. She goes, I'll be there in a minute. Really strange. She was not like upset or anything. She said, I'll be there in a minute. She comes up to the hospital, walks into the room, And she looks at us, and she said, uh, Harold and I have been praying for the last year that he's been sick, that someone would be with him when he died. His biggest fear about dying was not dying, but he did not want to die alone. Jesus was indistractable, but he was also very interruptible. So don't, don't misunderstand what I, the rest of this sermon by, say, by, by leaving here today, by just saying, well, you know what? I'm cutting out all distractions in my life. Because sometimes there are distractions. You, you, you cannot be a person that's just closed off from being interrupted. We have to be people that can be indistractable while also being people that can be very interruptible. Now, that's, hard, that, that's going to be a hard balance to strike. But listen, it is the balance that you've got to work towards. And you've, and you've got to pray about it. And you've got to seek the Lord about it. And you've got to work to that. Most of us, what happens is we, we never try to work towards the balance. We just either close ourselves off and we don't allow any interruption or distraction to come into our life. Or we live the other way and we're just always open to all kinds of interruptions and distractions. Had I not been open to being interrupted that night, It could have been very well that Mr. Kincaid would have died in that room that night all by himself. But the fact of it was is that he died in a room with three people that loved him dearly that he loved dearly. Why? Because somebody, namely Willard Dulaney, was willing to be interrupted and was willing to interrupt me. If being distractible is one fault, this is the opposite. We must guard ourselves against becoming closed off to what God is doing around us. And today's story doesn't teach us to live a life of uninterrupted quiet time. The text is simple. Here it is. There is a time for service and there is a time of communion with Jesus. There is a time for service and there is a time of communion with Jesus. Quite often the best moments in our life come in the form of uh, of an unexpected interruption. I just gave you one in my life. A healthy Christian life is one which you learn to avoid unhealthy distractions so that you can be open to divine interruptions. Here's how I'd like to summarize a victorious Christian life. I'm going to put it on the screen. Learning to live free of devilish distractions so we can give full attention to divine interruptions. Now let's go back to the story. This is going to go pretty quickly here. Distractions is often the good keeping you from the essential. Here's here's the help. Distraction is often the good keeping you from the essential. What Martha was doing was not bad, right? She's serving Jesus. She was taking care of Jesus and people. She's using her spiritual gift, the gift of hospitality. Jesus' gentle rebuke of her was that she had let, what did he say? The many good keep her from the one essential work. Imagine talking to Martha the next day. So how was your time with Jesus yesterday? What was it like? Well, I don't remember much. I was in the back room cooking and cleaning. If you asked Mary, she'd say, oh, let me tell you, Jesus said this, and then he said that. She took advantage of a non-repeatable moment. Distraction seeks to, to get you to trade something that you only get one shot at for a bunch of things that in the scheme, in the grand scheme, aren't that important. Life is short. John Maxwell says it's hard to overestimate the importance of practically everything. Don't let the unimportant things keep you from the things that you can never get back. So whatever situation God has you in, be all there. That's probably my, that's probably, this week as I wrote that down, I was like, I'm glad my wife's not here this morning. Because she would be be back there like, hypocrite. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap myself out. Boy, I have to work really hard at being all there. I can be there physically and a million miles away mentally. I mean, I can. My brain's just firing off into different directions, switching from one gear to the next, from one thought to the next. I can be sitting there, calm, cool, and collected, and my brain be in total chaos. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with all your might. Missionary Jim Elliott summarized it this way. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt. every moment you, you believe given by God. Wherever you are, be all there. Be present. Colossians 3:23 Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Make every moment an offering to God. What if I lived that way and you lived that way? How, how radically would our life I mean, think about the degree to which our life would change? If we make every moment an offering to God, when you're with the people of God, be all there. Everybody should come to a weekend worship service, a small group, or something to offer and expect to hear from God. When you are with a group of friends, be all there. When you're with a group or in a meeting, be all there. Again, let me go back to Tony Reinke. This is what he says. He says, if I come into an appointment, and I take out my phone and put it on the table. I'm saying that I'm engaged for the moment, but ready to disengage if something more interesting comes along. And if my phone is in my hand and I'm responding to text and scrolling social media, I project open dismissiveness because dividing attention is a typical expression of disdain. In times of rest and solitude, be all there as well. Tony Ranke points out the irony of the phone is that it keeps us isolated from people when we're with them and distracted by people when we should be isolated from them. That's true, is it not? Y'all are laughing because you know it's true. God has a purpose in solitude and silence. And many of us never get it because stuff is always on. And we're continuously checking. Before I move on to number three, let me say something here to those of you that aren't believers, because I'm, I'm just not going to take for granted that, even though I know everybody here that we're all believers. Distraction is distraction with the good is one of Satan's primary tools to keep people from coming to considering eternal life. In Jesus' parable of the seeds, it was distraction that kept the seed of God's word from taking root. The sower sowed the seed, and the devil came along and just planted seeds of distraction. C.S. Lewis pointed out, it's not usually evil or unbelieving thoughts, just the ones that keep you from considering what is important. This is what Lewis said, you never reject the Word of God, you just got distracted from it. Distraction is intended to keep us from thinking about deep truths. So let me hit Christians here for a moment. Listen to the words of the mathematician Blaise Pascal written in the 17th century. We want to complexify our lives. I love that word, complexify. We don't, have, we don't have to, we want to. We wanted to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very things we complain about. For if we had leisure, we would, took, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts And see the great gaping hole should be hole, not hold, in our hearts and be terrified. Because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. So we run around like conscientious little bugs, scared rabbits, dancing attendants on our machines, our slaves, and making them our masters. We think we want peace and silence and freedom and leisure, but deep down we know that this would be and endure, unendurable to us, like a dark and empty room without distractions where we would be forced to confront ourselves. So can I, can I modernize that 16th century, I mean 17th century verbiage? Anybody in here watch Park and Rec? You people? Okay. I'm going to use something from Park, Parks and Rec. Andy is a character in that. And this is what Andy says. He says, Chris gave me this great job as a weekend security guard at City Hall. Only one problem. It's a terrible job. I did everything I was supposed to do, and I walked around the building four times, and only 20 minutes have gone by. I thought maybe 10 minutes had gone by since I started talking, but it's only been 15 seconds. I got so bored, I started thinking about existence. Do I matter? Do any of us? Is there a master plan in the works? A grand design? Just dumb stuff like that. <laughs> that's what he's get, That's what Blaise Pascal was getting at. Anytime we have some silence and solitude or anytime that we have an opportunity just to think about the deeper stuff in life. That's why we say st- so distracted and so busy is because we really don't want to contemplate those things. Those things that we bellyache about, how they, you know, oh, I'm just so wore out. I'm just so tired. I just can't get anything done. They're not being inflicted upon you. They are being inflicted by you. Why? Because if, those things, if, if that wasn't happening in your life, then all of a sudden you would be confronted with silence and solitude and an opportunity to listen to yourself and hear yourself and, dare I say, even hear from God. And most of us don't want to hear that. Distraction enslaves an insecure heart. Distraction enslaves an insecure heart. Martha's busyness appears to be driven by a need. A need she probably didn't even recognize about herself. Look at chapter 10, verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things. Jesus called her anxious and troubled. Do you know what the word anxious means? It means to be torn into pieces. Or to be torn in many directions. It's 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 literally the 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 synonym for the word distraction. The word upset means to be tossed along like a capsized boat with no anchor. Jesus diagnoses Martha as having an unhappy, unsettled, unanchored soul. She probably was the kind of person who needed to be. Needed. Do we got any people in here that need to be needed? We do. Don't, I'm not going to call any names, but we do. You never met someone like? Have you ever met someone like that? Are you that person, the type of person who only feels significant when everyone is depending on them? Here's the question for Martha. Why should she she need to feel needed by others to, to feel significant? Shouldn't the fact that Jesus loved her and wanted to spend time with her make her feel special? You see, she was looking for something in service that could only be found in the Savior. And boy, I see this all the time in the church. I see so many people who are great at serving But you can't get them to come to a Bible study. They'll serve, but they won't come into preaching. Wednesday night, we're going to go feed the homeless, and they're here. Wednesday night, prayer meeting and Bible study. Can't find them. You see, that's somebody that's looking for something in service that can only be found in the Savior. You know, if we could put Mary and Martha together, you'd have the perfect person. You'd have the person that understood, first, of, first and foremost, everything that I need I find in Jesus, therefore I can go out and serve like crazy. You see, when it's all said and done, her distraction like ours comes from failing to believe the promises of God. When we tend to stay over busy because we silently tell ourselves, if I don't do as much as I possibly can, I'll never make it in life. If I don't do as much as I possibly can, I'm going to fall behind. If I don't do as much as I possibly can, I might be poor. If I don't do as much as I possibly can, I won't be accepted. If I don't do as much as I possibly can... I will disappoint someone. If I don't do as much as I possibly can, I just won't measure up. This this is a failure to believe the gospel. Martha's disbelief leads to an awkward encounter. She rebukes Jesus. She accuses Jesus of not caring and tells him what to do. Can I tell you something? Anytime you start rebuking Jesus, that's, hey, son, you're in the wrong direction. Uh, If you want to know whether your spiritual life is going off the tracks, Start acu- just listen to yourself. If you're accusing Jesus of something, then you've gone off the tracks. Next, distraction entices an empty heart. An empty heart. Because Jesus was not at the right place, in Martha's heart, her soul craved the significance that came from serving. When our soul is out of fellowship with Jesus, we always want more, which is why our radar is still on for the next enticement. Scientists say the reason many of us are so attached to our phones is that when we look at social media, a chemical called dopamine gets released. Dopamine is the same substance that causes us to get addicted to drugs or any other thing. Ironically, dopamine heightens when the hits are smaller. They're doing some studies, and the reason why... So many people are addicted to Twitter. You may not be. I know probably a lot of y'all might not even do Twitter. There's a lot of people addicted to Twitter. And you know why? Out of all the social media, Twitter is believed by many to be the most addictive? Is because it's a hundred, all you can type, you can do a little more now, but 140 characters. It's a small hit. It's a small hit. As with other addictions, we feel like we need increasingly more of it for the same high, which might, which might be why studies show that 33% of people check their phone in the middle of the night or when they are bored and don't know what to do, they instinctively reach down for their phone. John Piper wrote a great article that asked, why are we so drawn to turn excuse me, why we are so drawn to turn to technology first thing in the morning or at the first sign of a law. This might be the most helpful piece of anything that I tell you this morning. Here's the reasons. One is novelty candy. It's novelty candy. Here's what he says. We have FOMO. Y'all know what FOMO is? Kids, y'all know what FOMO is, teenagers? What's that? Fear of missing out. We're afraid that friends are going to know something we don't know. Sociologists have classified a condition where you experience legitimate anxiety of being too separated from your phone. It's called nomophobia. <laughs> That's the fear of missing your phone. No more phobia. I can't make this stuff up. I mean, literally, this comes right, off, comes right out of the Internet. Without Jesus, your FOMO will lead to no more phobia. But with Jesus, you will have no more FOMO. Y'all have to decrypt that. With Jesus, you will have no more FOMO, which means Jesus can do away with your fear of missing out. That's called novelty candy. And you know how we stir this up in each other? Did you see that picture? What picture? Did you see the picture that so-and-so posted this morning? Oh, I didn't see that. And what do you do? <laughs> Grab your phone. like Let me find that picture. What's that picture all about? Like yesterday, I, I, was, I was talking to Brandy. And she said, did you see that big old snake your mother killed? And I was like, what snake? Then I'm on my phone while I'm talking to her trying to find the snake. And I'm just like, this proves my point about my whole sermon right here. Fear of missing out. What snake? Because I sure don't want to show up at church today and y'all say, I saw that big old snake your mama killed. What snake? What am I missing out on? How big was it? I don't know if she killed it or not. It was on her Facebook page. You'll have to ask her about it. But don't check your phone right now to see about the snake. Because some of you are dying right now. You want to look at your phone like, I got to see that snake. It's not that impressive. <laughs> ego candy. So you got novelty candy and ego candy. We want to know what people are saying about us. I'm almost convinced that the only reason why we post stuff on social media is because we need validation. I told y'all, I'm not not preaching to y'all, I'm preaching to me. Why? Because you're constantly looking. Did anybody comment? Did anybody like it? Why didn't nobody comment? Why didn't anybody like it? Why did they say what they said? I cannot believe they said that about me. We got to have our ego stroke. We want people to say something about us, to acknowledge us. Or be in an event with some other people and pictures are being taken and the person taking the picture starts posting pictures of everybody at the event but you. What happens then? I wonder why they didn't post a picture about me. Why they leave me out. I was there. I knew my picture got taken. Why didn't they post my picture on, on the page? Hmm. I guess they don't really like me. I knew she didn't like me from the start. She's never like me. I know that because the way she looks at me. She's never commented on any pictures I've ever posted. She's probably unfriended me. I should probably go in and check my friends to see if we're still even friends. God. Entertainment candy. We want to feed on what is fascinating, weird, strange, unusual, and shocking. Like... Look at the woman in Oregon whose alpaca can do calculus. Y'all ever get that kind of stuff sent to you? The weird stuff? The bizarre stuff? Boredom avoidance? We want to put off the day ahead, especially when it looks like routine to us. Responsibility avoidance? We want to put off the responsibilities God has given us as fathers, mothers, bosses, employees, and students. Hardship avoidance? We want to put off dealing with relationship conflicts or pain, disease, and disabilities in our bodies. Candy and avoidance strategies. Candy is not good for you. It gives you no sustenance, but it tastes good. And if you're starving, it can temporarily entice you, even though it hurts you in the long run. And avoidance strategies keep you from doing what you know you should be doing. These are the signs of an unhealthy soul that needs a hit of entertainment or distraction drug to find satisfaction and enjoyment. We are supposed to have such pleasure in knowing and doing the will of God. We are not susceptible to, uh, we are not susceptible to other cravings. Again, in John 4, Jesus was so focused on God's will, he, couldn't, he could go without food because doing God's will was more fulfilling to him than even eating Martha should have been so full of intimacy with Jesus and doing His will that she didn't feel the need to prove herself and so she could sit at the feet of Jesus instead of running around trying to serve Him. So let me go to this final point this morning. Distraction rules an unprioritized heart. Unprioritized heart. Our priorities... How many of you, how many of us live a life of priority? What's important? What's not important? We've already decided in our heart what's at the top, what, what's non-negotiable, or do we just live a life without priority? The necessary component to being, to being forced on what you need to be focused on is saying no to other good things. Martha needed the ability to say no to legitimately good things so she could say yes to the best. One of the most valuable things I ever learned was that whenever I said yes to anything, I was saying no to another. What are you saying yes to? And what is that yes now forcing you to say no to? How about one last personal Testimony here. Several years ago, um, when I was training several guys here uh, at the church in powerlifting and uh, teaching some other uh, classes on weightlifting outside of uh, outside of the church, I never forget. I get a phone call from Angel, and her and Jasmine at the time were playing volleyball. And she said, "Hey, Dad. She goes, we've got a uh, a practice match this afternoon at whatever time it was, five o'clock." And I said, "Okay." I said, uh, "Well, I'll do everything I can to be there." You know, I've I've got you know I've got these guys to train, and then this to do after that. And I'll never forget the words she said. She said, "Well, Dad, you've got time for everybody else but us." I was like, you know what? I didn't say this to her, but in my mind, I said, you know what? You're right. You're right. It was an exposure of my own heart. Needless to say, I made it to the practice match that afternoon at 5 o'clock, and the other people that were waiting, waiting on me or would have been waiting on me were called and said, look, I won't be there. I've got something more important to take care of. Success is determined as much by what you don't do as what you do do. Success can be determined as much as what you don't do as what you do. So how about some practical helps? Number 1, take 15 minutes of your day to be with Jesus. Take 15 minutes of your day to be with Jesus. I didn't say 30, I didn't say an hour. I didn't say, could you not tarry one hour with Jesus today? Because for some of us, an hour would seem like a week. So what do we need to go for? How about 15 minutes tomorrow? How about 15 minutes in particular in the morning tomorrow? I read where Martin Luther said that if he knew he had a big day coming up, that sometimes that he would wake up, two to three hours early to get himself ready for that day. I'm not even asking you to to do that. I'm asking you to find 15 minutes in the morning and devote it solely to Jesus. There's no handout this week. There's nothing, I mean, you've got the book to read, but there's no additional material because here's what I want you to do. I want you to take Monday's reading and read it And whatever scripture that goes along with it. And then I want you to give Jesus 15 minutes of you. Second, throughout the day, keep your phone in your pocket. And only check it at intervals. You can do this. I can do this. Hey, do you know there? there's some cool little apps that are out? that will actually shut down all your social media... Man, that's going to be a tongue twister. Social media apps for certain time frames. So say like you you don't want to know anything about... You don't even want to get on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, any of those, that it will shut your apps down from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock or from 12 to 1 or whenever. If you need some help with that. If it's email or texting... I know sometimes with your job, some of those things are unavoidable, but do everything that you can to space out the intervals in your day when you're on this phone, when you're distracted. How about this one? This is my favorite. Unfollow the people you envy. How many of you look at other people and say, Man, I wish I had their life. Man, they're always on a fun trip. They're always having a good time. They must have the greatest marriage in the world. They're always happy, smiling at each other, kissing, hugging. I wish I wish my husband would send me flowers. I wish he'd take me on a trip. I wish my wife would do this. I wish'd look, if you've got people that when you see their postings it causes a little bit of strife and envy in your life, then you just need to go ahead and you need to unfollow them. Not, not, not because you're mad at them, but you're doing it for the welfare of your own soul. Just unfollow them. And if they hit you up, hey, why'd you unfollow me? You mad at me? Nope. Mad at me. Because I'm filled with envy. And I can't look at your beautiful pictures without it messing me up and, 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 and messing my life up don't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with me. And then last, but certainly not least, review your priorities often. What roles you need to fulfill to be faithful. What tasks you need to accomplish to be a success. Do this in community. Review them with your spouse if you have one. People in your small group or your boss if you have a good relationship with them. But most of all, reprioritize time with Jesus that is the key to everything else. Listen, you're not going to live, this world is not going to get less distracting. <laughs> it's only going to get more distracting. And so it is high time that we, as believers, look at our own lives and say, you know what? I'm just like the definition. I feel like I got one arm going this way, another arm going that way, one leg going that way, one leg, and I'm being pulled apart, and if something doesn't change, I'm going to come apart. No one's fault but your own. And listen, I don't care what people say. You can get your distraction under control, but you will not be able to do it alone. You'll need community And more than that, you'll need Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. And with patience and prayer and with faithful believers in your life, you and I can live more victorious when it comes and be more devoted than being people that are distracted. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess how significantly distracted we are this morning. And even in hearing this, some of us have have battled lots of distractions and just trying to stay on task and stay focused on what's being said. And it doesn't really have anything to do with the length of time. It has everything to do with a heart that is way too easily enticed by other loves other than Christ. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to deal with our hearts in ways that lead us to being more devoted so that we can be less distracted in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand this morning and sing.